This week, Ditech back in bankruptcy. Westmoreland Coal Act retirees settle. PG&E unsecured creditors, tort claimants committees appointed. Aurelius obtains favorable ruling in Windstream dispute. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Welcome again and hello. This is Reorg's weekly podcast, where every Sunday we bring you the latest on what's new in bankruptcy and distressed debt. I'm Alex Brosman, here in Reorg's New York City headquarters. And I'm Connor Skelding. Later, Mark Fisher sits down with our own Jim Holloway and distressed financial analysts Yashwant Chandaru and Adam Rhodes to bring you the latest on the offshore energy market, including a look at drillers, OSVs, and helicopters, with an eye on Bristow, Diamond Offshore, Ensco, and PHI. It's Sunday, February 17th. This week in the PG&E saga, parties continued to line up. The U.S. trustee appointed a nine-member official committee of unsecured creditors. The members include BOKF as indenture trustee under the unsecured notes indentures, NextEra Energy, and the PBGC. After holding pitches, the UCC selected FTI Consulting as financial advisor and Millbank as legal advisor. An investment bank hire has yet to be announced. Also, sources told Reorg that Aiken Gump is now representing the bondholder group previously represented by Millbank. The UST also appointed an 11-member tort claimants committee that includes several wine companies and private citizens who, per public records, appear to be current or former residents of Paradise, California, which was largely destroyed by the campfire in 2018. Meanwhile, the first wildfire liability-related adversary proceeding against the PG&E debtors in the Chapter 11 cases kicked off on Thursday. The class action complaint concerns the campfire and alleges, among other counts, negligence and inverse condemnation in seeking redress of injuries from that fire related to economic, real property, personal property, and evacuation damages. The complaint demands a jury trial and does not include a specified dollar amount sought in damages. Judge Dennis Montali, who provides over PG&E's bankruptcy cases in San Francisco, made some remarks on the debtor's adversary proceeding against the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission at a hearing on Wednesday. In the lawsuit, the debtors have asked for a declaratory judgment that the bankruptcy court has exclusive jurisdiction over the debtor's rights to reject executory power purchase agreements, or PPAs. The debtors have asked for a preliminary injunction to certain proceedings before the commission. Judge Montali said that, without deciding any of the underlying substance of the jurisdictional dispute, and expressly in a self-proposed hypothetical whereby an injunction against FERC was not being sought, that Section 365 of the Bankruptcy Code would simply authorize a rejection of a PPA, resulting in a breach of the PPA and a rejection damages claim, but the rejection itself would not, under his, quote, read, implicate the filed rate doctrine, which, at least in part, governs FERC's jurisdiction as it accepts or approves rates. The judge added that FERC, in that context, would still have, quote, something to do. A status conference and not the preliminary injunction hearing as originally scheduled in the adversary proceeding is now set for February 27th. On Monday, Ditec filed for Chapter 11 for the second time, reporting between $10 billion and $50 billion in both assets and liabilities. The company, formerly known as Walter Investment Management, emerged from its first bankruptcy just over a year ago as Ditech on February 9, 2018. 
At the first day hearing, Judge James Garrity Jr. approved the full $1.9 billion in dip financing on an interim basis, in addition to a number of other first day motions. The DITEC debtors entered the cases with a restructuring support agreement executed with an ad hoc group of term lenders owning more than 75% of the term loans. The RSA contemplates that the debtors will run a dual-track process consisting of a post-petition sale process for some or all of the company's assets or its subsurfacing agreement and a restructuring transaction that would leave 100% of the reorganized equity with the term lenders and a $400 million new term loan. The debtors had been evaluating their strategic alternatives over the past year and had engaged with third parties regarding potential sale transactions. The debtors say that they received a restructuring proposal from an ad hoc group of second lien lenders that contemplated equitizing a portion of the second lien notes and obtaining amortization relief from the term lenders, but that they ultimately elected to pursue the RSA with the term lender group. During the hearing, debtors counsel Sunny Singh of Weil Gottschall highlighted that the dip financing is, quote, not your typical dip, in that it is a warehouse financing facility as opposed to an ABL or a term loan. The DIP contemplates refinancing certain of the debtors' pre-petition warehouse loans that had been subject to now-expired forbearance agreements, among others. He explained that refinancing these loans was necessary since the pre-petition loans fall within the safe harbor provision under the bankruptcy code, and that the lenders, therefore, would not be barred from foreclosing. A, quote, Potential game over right out of the gate, he said. Singh said that these loans would also cause the estate to accrue fees on a daily basis. The Westmoreland Coal debtors filed a motion this week seeking approval of a settlement term sheet proposing to resolve, quote, all disputes between the debtors' estates. The filing indicates that the settlement was reached after, quote, months of good faith, arm's length discussions between the WLB debtors, the WMLP debtors, the WLB secured lenders, and the MLP secured lenders. The agreement also contemplates a settlement offer to the United Mine Workers of America. Westmoreland also announced a settlement with the Coal Act Retiree Committee on Thursday. According to the Retiree Committee, the settlement provides for a, quote, orderly transition process for individual employer plan, or IEP, beneficiaries to move to the 1992 plan, which would begin upon the closing of the sale of the debtor's assets. The 1992 plan would have up to 90 days to establish an enrollment date, and the IEP would continue to provide coverage for 90 days to facilitate the transition process. On Friday afternoon, Judge Jesse Furman issued his long-awaited opinion on the Windstream sale leaseback and 2017 note exchange dispute between Windstream Aurelius and U.S. Bank as indentured trustee of the company's 6.375% senior notes. The opinion concludes that the 2015 spin-off transaction was a sale and leaseback transaction under the notes indenture. Quote, the court finds by a preponderance of the evidence that Windstream Services violated the indenture by engaging in an impermissible sale and leaseback transaction, and that its subsequent maneuvers did not waive or cure the default arising from that breach. Aurelius is therefore entitled to the relief it seeks. Among other things, the ruling dismisses Windstream Services' counterclaims with prejudice and awards a money judgment to Aurelius of $310.5 million plus interest since July 23, 2018.
Judge Furman took the dispute under advisement after trial concluded in July 2018. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, on Friday, the First Circuit declined to order dismissal of the Title III case and found PROMISA members were, quote, de facto officers acting under the color of authority in filing the Title III petition. The First Circuit's opinion in concluding that the PROMISA Oversight Board members, quote, must be and were not appointed in compliance with the Appointments Clause, also declines to dismiss the Oversight Board's Title III petitions as requested by Aurelius, Assured Guarantee, and UTIR. Quote, Our ruling, as such, does not eliminate any otherwise valid actions of the Board prior to the issuance of our mandate in this case, says the opinion. Thursday, Reorg reported that, although mediation talks aimed at achieving a consensual plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth resumed last week, they did not lead to any further meetings being scheduled, according to three sources familiar with the matter. In a Wednesday memo to participating parties, Judge Barbara Hauser, the leader of the Title III court-appointed mediation team, said she does not believe the mediation team can play a constructive role in resolving the disputes between the parties because of differences on legal and factual issues, according to the sources. The memo said the parties that are needed to develop a plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth and related instrumentalities are not prepared to work constructively toward solutions, absent a ruling by Judge Laura Taylor Swain, or other external developments, the sources added. The day before, Wednesday, Reorg reported that the development of a new Commonwealth fiscal plan and the fallout from two recent joint legal actions by the Oversight Board and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors against Commonwealth creditor interests are proving to be obstacles to negotiations toward a consensual plan of adjustment. On Tuesday, February 12th, as expected, COFINA's Title III plan of adjustment went effective, and was substantially consummated. AFAF said in a press release that this marks the first ever plan of adjustment under Title III of the PROMISA to be confirmed and become effective. Governor Ricardo Rosselló added, quote, COFINA's emergence from Title III of PROMISA is an important step towards restructuring Puerto Rico's public debt, returning to the capital markets, and laying the foundation for a more resilient, vibrant, and stronger economy. Other top red stories of the week were, Adiant Bonds stock fall after adjusted EBITDA decline, covenant amendment. Bristow secured bondholders working with Davis Polk. Prices slide across cap stack after Columbia termination, internal controls disclosure. Hexion working with Latham as legal advisor, Molus as financial advisor amid upcoming maturity wall. And now, here's Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor, and good morning from the Bayou. Uh, This week is somewhat less hectic than last one, and it's dominated by earnings. Monday, February 18th, is, of course, federal holiday. Courts and financial markets are closed. Tuesday, February 19th, earnings from Pioneer Energy Services, oil field services with a big presence in the Eagleford and the Permian. Also, Vistra's tender for its 2022 notes expires at midnight. Wednesday, February 20th, earnings from Bausch Health, formerly known as Valiant, along with Intelsat. And there's a hearing related to Mission Cole's motion to reject its collective bargaining agreements with the United Mine Workers. Thursday, February 21st, earnings from Scientific Games, Windstream, Avis, Community Health, Comstock, Altice USA, and Caesars. And there's a settlement and final dip hearing in Synergy. And on Friday... Well, you'd be happy to know that the calendar looks pretty clean. That's all from me. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks for that, Jim. Now, as previewed, 
Our analysts and reporting teams discuss the latest on the offshore energy market. Thanks, Connor. So we're here talking about energy again. Uh, I know we spoke about it last week, and actually we had a different topic in mind for this segment this week, but there's actually been a lot of activity in in the offshore market. A couple of companies that we're going to be discussing later could be in the midst of uh, restructuring or trying to restructure uh, their balance sheets. So thought it was a, a pretty good time uh, now that a couple of companies have also reported uh, to revisit the offshore energy space. So Back again with uh, Jim Holloway, um, who is our energy expert here at uh, Reorg, with um, Yashwan Chanduru, uh, who is a distressed analyst, and Adam Rhodes, who is also a distressed analyst and actually the newest member of our uh, distressed uh, financial analyst team uh, and his first podcast. So welcome, Adam. And uh, as always, Yash, Jim, welcome too. So want to start off with... Uh, Jim, if you could provide us with uh, an overview of the offshore uh, market, talking about uh, the rigs, the OSVs, helicopters, uh, basically anyone out there that's servicing the offshore EMP space. Well, Mark, if I may quote the eminently quotable Todd Hornbeck, the CEO of Hornbeck Offshore, market conditions in offshore are starting to tape shape that will drive utilization and day rates higher. Um, the rig contractors have done their part. They've taken aggressive steps to rid themselves of some of the excess capacity that's dogged the market since 2014. There were about 20 floaters retired last year. Utilization has crept back up to the 60% level from the cycle of 50% that we saw in January 2017. It's been a good deal of M&A with Transocean buying Sangha and Ocean Rig uh, in SCO with, um, with Rowan. There's a pickup on exploration activity. Offshore is where you find the really large reserves that the uh, major oil companies need and there's been some huge discoveries recently exxon with this monstrous thing off the coast of guyana um, bp and shell with big finds in the gulf and uh, chevron may be looking to start up a project in the gulf with a one-of-a-kind high pressure high temp rig contracted from transocean and a lot of entrepreneurial activity is still driving the north sea and uh, we're also having some good signs offshore mexico and offshore brazil however uh, we need utilization of 80% for the rig owners to get stronger pricing on day rates and service vessel utilization and rates, whether it's boats or helicopters, tends to lag rigs by about 18 months. Thanks. And, you know, based on your comments, it seems like, you know, we've had some or reports that I've seen, actually, it seems like it's been somewhat of an uneven recovery. Uh, we've seen some stabilization in some of the drilling rig markets uh, you discussed. There's some stabilization for specialized uh, rigs, but I definitely wouldn't say that it's been widespread, the stabilization or recovery, if there are any signs of the recovery. And at least from a financial performance perspective, some of the segments, uh, we're continuing to see uh, declines year over year. And I'm talking about the OSVs and the helicopters. Uh, if you could discuss a little bit more on that, Jim. Yeah, that's correct. Um, as I mentioned, harsh environment semi-subs, which are used pretty much exclusively in the North Sea, also sometimes off the coast of Canada, can command day rates north of 300000 There's very good supply-demand balance there, which cannot be said for non-harsh environment semi-subs or even the state-of-the-art ultra-deep water drill ships. The average day rate for a sink seventh generation drill ship is about 170,000, according to estimates provided by Basso Analytics. 
uh, and even Transocean's high pressure or high temperature rig will be paid only about 380000 to $390,000. Um, I say only because probably prior to 2014, that may have commanded like as much as 600000 um, But again, that's just a very unique situation, almost analogous to the uh, harsh environment rigs. Um, with OSV and Zs and helicopters, the utilization is a lot more volatile. As we saw with Hornbeck, um, it can swing from around 70 80% to 30% quarter to quarter, depending on the season. You know, you're not going to be doing a lot of construction in January or, you know, in November or December off the coast of Louisiana, for example. Um, but I think probably the overcapacity issue and the utilization issue remains a bigger problem for vessels and for OSVs than for the rigs. And, um, you know, I think we're seeing some of the challenges with that, um, among other things, appear with Bristow and PHI. Great. Thanks, Jim. Now I want to turn it over to Yash and Adam, who are going to talk about a couple of uh, names that we follow here in, at, at Reorg. And, you know, we cover a lot of the offshore space, but a couple of companies in particular, uh, ones we've actually recently initiated on Diamond Offshore and, and Ensco, um, they sort of contrast each other, you know, a little bit. And it would be interesting, I thought, to um, compare and contrast uh, these, these companies. Um, so, Yash, you cover uh, Diamond. Adam, you cover Ensco. Uh, the first thing I wanted to discuss, uh, Jim had mentioned a lot about M&A activity, and uh, it seems like the companies have different views of, of M&A and just capital allocation in general. So Adam, if I could start with you, what, what's been ENSCO's history here in, uh, in M&A? Thanks, Mark. That's right. ENSCO has been quite active in the M&A front. Um, since buying Pride International in 2011, the company acquired Atwood Oceanics in October of 2017, and in October of last year, and that's an all-stock deal to combine with rowing companies. Great. And uh, Yash, uh, Diamond, um, what, have they, what have they done in space? Yeah, so they're kind of on the flip side of that. Um, they're notable for their you know, lack of M&A activity. However, um, what they have been doing is, so on the fourth quarter call, which was this past Monday, the 11th, uh, the company said their 2019 CapEx, um, which is kind of in the range of $350 million, includes... 110 million to upgrade and reactivate uh, one of their ships, the Ocean Onyx, and another 20 million to complete the re- reactivation of the Ocean Endeavor, both of which were previously cold stacked. And this raised a call from, sorry, raised a question from a call participant um, saying, would it be fair to say the focus on upgrading rigs means that the company would not be an acquirer in the MA market? And the CEO, Mark Edwards, he declined to answer other than to say that uh, the best allocation of capital that they've seen uh, when they compare with what they, their alternatives are today is to indeed keep their fleet running. Interesting. Um, so let's let's examine those fleets at these companies. Uh, Adam, if you could start uh, in Ensco right now, I know you've done a fair bit of work looking at their fleet, what the mix of the fleet is, what's working, what's not, what's contracted out, what's not contra- contracted out. Uh, so if you could you know, go through and describe, um, just give us that sort of 10,000 foot level. Great, yeah. So Ensco has 22 floaters, uh, seven of which are the highest spec, and 35 jackups, which are classified as ultra harsh or modern harsh. Um, they've recently reported a handful of new contracts. However, it's keeping its cl- uh, cards close to the vest. 
and withholding d- new data rate information. On the floater side, the Ensco DS9, a seventh generation drill ship, which has been idled since delivery in 2015, started a mating one well contract with Total in French Guinea in December. A couple other Afri- African contracts of note the seventh generation DS12 drill ship is starting a two well contract in Senegal with BP in April, and the DS10 drill ship recently received a one year contract extension of its shell contract with, in Nigeria. Uh, to which we extended to March 2020. Uh, in terms of the jackups, the company has been pretty active with Saudi Aramco. It commenced three new three-year contracts with them in July, August, and November. Another rig, the Ensco 76, had its Aramco contract extended uh, four years in December. In total, Saudi Aramco had contracted nine of the company's jackups as of January of this year. Thanks. And Yash, what has Diamond done? Yeah, so they have a much smaller fleet than Ensco, but roughly a similar level of backlog, uh, sitting around $2 billion as of January 1st. Um, so Diamond's fleet consists of 17 ships, uh, no jackups, and of those ships, four of them are classified as ultra-deep-water drill ships, um, kind of latest generation, all built, I think three were built in 2014, one in 2015, and they have 13 semi-submersibles, seven of which are classified as ultra deep water. And Diamond uh, also doesn't have any kind of harsh environment rigs that can fetch you know, premier prices. Um, and according to their latest fleet status report, of its um, fleet, four of its rigs are stacked, all of which are kind of their older, you know, more mature rigs built before 2003. And so, all of its ultra deep water drill ships are contracted kind of through the end of 2019, um, but they start to roll off in 2020. And so, you know, naturally that will start to raise questions on the rates at which those, uh, if at all, can be recontracted. Interesting. And that's definitely a theme in terms of what's working right now, uh, ultra deep water and then with Ensco and, you know, their harsh environment. Um, ones, but the roll-off, um, that's you know where sort of actually the market here, and particularly Diamond and Ensco are sort of consistent. Um, Ensco has a number of rigs uh, rolling off in 2020 as, as well. So, you know, Adam, if you could talk about uh, those and what sort of risk do you see as those contracts roll off? So the most interesting one to me is related to a contract with Total, which is a 2014 vintage contract. Um, right now, the uh, well, Ensco reported a $239,000 average day rate in Q3, and this contract accounted for $620,000 a day of day rate. If you take that contract out, um, that reduces their average day rate down to $201,000 per day on the floater side. Uh, and this contract expires in November of 2020. Um, another three uh, floaters that are interesting are three that came from Pride International through that acquisition. And those are three of the lowest spec um, rigs that they have within the, uh, the, the, floaters, the floater fleet. And they all roll off as of this year. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with those contracts going forward. Great. Um, you know, that, that was a great summary in terms of the, uh, the offshore driller space. Wanted to move on to another segment of, of the, mar- the offshore market, um, which 
has, you know, I alluded to in the beginning about uh, companies that might have to deal with their capital structure, and Jim will go more into this um, in, in a bit. Uh, but you know, basically, you blink, and it looks like every single advisor has these helicopter companies on speed dial. So, wanted to um, discuss, uh, you know, a couple of them uh, that that we cover over here. Um, Yash, I, I know you look at PHI. Um, you know, if you could just provide, just give us a little bit of an overview, um, you know, there and, um, and and essentially what's happened there. Yeah, thanks, Mark. So. You're definitely right. The helicopter space is heated up uh, in the past few months. And so I'll start with PHI. When we started looking into them uh, in August of last year, they were in the middle of a tender offer for their $500 million of senior notes um, coming due in 2019. So they launched this tender back in June and they kept getting, uh, they kept extending it repeatedly, which people thought uh, seemed to be due to a lack of financing lined up to take out those notes. And eventually, that offer ended up getting terminated in October. And so this kind of left a big question in the market, what's gonna happen to these $500 million of senior notes coming due in March of 2019? And so, you know, one thing they got done in the fall though, they received a $130 million loan from the financing affiliate of Al Gonsolin, their chairman, CEO, and controlling shareholder to take out its revolving credit facility. And they also announced that they had hired Hulihan Loki to pursue strategic alternatives. And then they announced that third quarter results, which was not, um, you know, not great for them. The air medical segment, uh, which was kind of considered by many to be their crown jewel asset. And if, you know, maybe they got a sale of it, that could have helped them avoid bankruptcy and pay down some debt. So that segment's profit fell by over 60%. And even though their revenue was flat, and they said that was primarily attributable to increased um, employee compensation costs and decreased transports at their existing bases, uh, which they said was driven by weather-related issues. And so now PHI is kind of a month away from a $500 million maturity, and discussions are starting to form around what's going to happen to the whole capital structure. Um, but I'll let Jim get into that a little bit later. And uh, you cover some other names in the uh, in the space as well, uh, Bristow. Yeah, that's right. And uh, man, Bristow has been a wild ride. Um, so in November, uh, along with their fiscal second quarter results, and they'd actually, um, you know, they originally planned their, to announce their results and then they pushed it back a few days. And then with the pushed back date, uh, they announced not only their earnings, but they announced their CEO would be retiring they announced that they would be entering an agreement to acquire Columbia Helicopters for $560 million with what they described as fully committed debt financing, um, which included a $360 million bridge term loan, as well as $135 million of senior secured convertible notes. And uh, the next month in December is kind of when the warning signs started. They announced on December 10th that they no longer were expecting to complete the acquisition by their previously targeted date of December 31st. Later that month, uh, the company announced that their convertible note purchasers elected not to elect to take on an additional $15 million of converts. And then after the turn of the new year in January, Global Value Investment Corporation delivered a letter to Bristow's board, strongly encouraging the board to reevaluate the terms of the acquisition. 
They warned, among other things, of massive dilution that could occur on account of the convertible notes given the precipitous decline in Bristow's share price. Their stock fell um, to 349 on Tuesday, January 8th, which is the day before the, the GVIC letter was publicly announced from uh, over $10 on November 8th, which was the day before the acquisition was announced. And now, um, kind of where we are today, earlier this week, along with their third quarter results, Bristow dropped some more bombshells, announcing that um, the mutual termination of its agreement with Columbia, and also that it discovered, uh, quote, material weakness in its internal controls, uh, which resulted in them not filing their 10Q for the third quarter. And they said specifically that they're evaluating whether certain debt balances should be reclassified from long-term to short-term, and uh, whether related waivers can be obtained from lenders if necessary, and importantly, the resulting impact on the assessment of the company's ability to continue as a going concern. Thanks, Yash. So, you know, listening to you, it's definitely a little tougher to get a read on what's, you know, what's happening in the helicopter space, uh, especially as opposed to the, um, the, the drilling space where you do see some, some common themes, but it seems like in the helicopter space, obviously aside from Bristow's accounting, uh, questions, which we'll find out hopefully some answers to soon. Uh, but you also have some uh, stops and starts in uh, in their numbers um, as as well. Uh, haven't maybe when we think we see some stabilization, maybe things uh, take a little bit of a, a a turn from the for the worse in um, in some of these segments. Now, what happens to the industry? You know, certainly this industry is not unfamiliar with um, the the restructuring space. If it goes down that road, uh, that road, we've uh, we've seen CHC file for bankruptcy uh, a few years ago, which is a very large uh, player in this space. The industry at the time did think that. CHC filing would result in a lot of capacity coming out in the market and could stabilize uh, pricing. It uh, doesn't seem like that uh, that actually happened. Recently, we, uh, we, we've been covering a bankruptcy here, Waypoint Leasing, uh, that filed, which does give uh, some, perhaps some uh, potential positives in terms of asset value here where the company was able to sell 120 aircraft to Macquarie for 650 million, and then within, within their financing structure, received uh, two credit bids uh, from two different uh, financing, um, financing entities, what they call the WAC-9 and WAC-12. Uh, so there is some interest in, um, in, in those helicopter assets. So we'll see, uh, see what happens going forward in this space. But Jim, if you could you know, help us, you just give us a little bit more of a current uh, view on what's happening. Yash alluded to some, uh, some of the companies working with advisors now that we learned here at Reorg. Uh, that is correct, Mark. Um, as we've reported, uh, Davis Polk, a bit of the early mover advantage, I guess, they're working with some senior secured bondholders. Um, and I think at this juncture, people are trying to figure out um, what the whole material weakness and internal controls thing means, as uh, Yash alluded to when he was speaking, and what the implications are for the valuation. You know, um, 
um, what the reclassification means, what that, how that shakes out in terms of what it's worth in any kind of situation. I think there's a lot of conversation going on about, you know, what it means and how that's going to stack up. As far as PHI goes, um, you know, again, as we've reported, Millbank and PJT are working with some bondholders. Uh, the company is with DL Piper and Houlihan Loki. Um, and as we've reported, the bonds are looking for a full equitization and the company's advisors are aware of that. So we'll see how it shakes out. Thank you, Jim. So a lot of stuff that uh, we have to to watch here at Reorg. Really appreciate everyone's time. Jim, Yash, Adam, thank you very much. And Connor, back to you. That's all for now. And thanks for listening. Our usual reminder, find all Reorg podcasts on the site media page, or if you don't subscribe, on iTunes or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelting.